0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Picture London in the summer of 1858. It was hot. The temperature hit the mid-90s in the shade on the hottest days. It stunk as the Thames flowed with raw sewage and industrial waste in what became known as the Great Stink. Yet during this period, events were unfolding that would have lasting effects. With me today from London is Rosemary Ashton, author of One Hot Summer, Dickens, Darwin, Disraeli, and the Great Stink of 1858. Rosemary is Professor of English and Literature at University College London. She's written numerous books, and she's a fellow of the British Academy and of the Royal Society of Literature. Rosemary, thank you for coming on today. It's a pleasure, Michael. So how hot is it in London today?
1: Oh, uh, we are having a hot summer, particularly hot summer for us. Today it's uh, it's up in the low seventies, but it's been in the nineties a few times in the last couple of months. So it's quite appropriate, really, for the title of my book.
0: <laughs> so set set the scene a little bit uh, for the summer of eighteen fifty-eight. What was what was that summer like um, for Londoners and for visitors to the city?
1: Well, it was an extremely hot summer. It, it, it was the hottest summer on record to date, to that time. And also it enjoyed the hottest day on the 16th of June when the temperature rose to 94.5 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade, <laughs> apparently. But the, uh, the worst thing is, so hot, <laughs> and of course no air conditioning <laughs> or uh, even much in the way of fans or anything at that time. And London are very busy... quite crowded city of two million inhabitants um, uh, and a number of them, of course, not able to have good sanitary conditions and indeed the sanitary conditions were the worst of it because um, by a sort of mistaken attempt at improving sanitation, what had happened in the previous years was that human sewage was being dumped into the Thames via rainwater drains Um, and then drinking water was subsequently pulled out of the Thames. And the Thames is a tidal river, but it flowed backwards and forwards with all this increasing smelly, nasty effluent never getting rid of this load. And so finally, um, after some number of hot summers when Parliament The the Great, the Times, and various other newspapers had been agitating for something to be done. Uh, This summer really was the summer to end all summers in terms of stink and, of course, uh, anxiety about disease as well. And so, finally, uh, Parliament was pushed into passing the Thames Purification Act. And what then happened was that the great, wonderful, innovative engineer Joseph Bazalgette. produced these tunnels, these sewers, by the side of the Thames and took all the sewage out through intercepting sewers out to outfalls outside London in the country. And at the same time, he embanked those sewers, and so we now have the great embankments on the Thames. So he beautified the city at the same time as ridding it of this menace.
0: So he's he's a hero to Londoners everywhere, I imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, yes. Um, What effect did this heat and these poor conditions um, have on the general public?
1: Well, of course, um, as historians, we know that that's often quite difficult to get at because uh, ordinary or poorer common people, if you like, uh, tended not to write letters and keep diaries, or if they did, they have not been preserved in the various archives around the place. But what you can find out uh, about ordinary people living Often in cramped conditions and often right down by the side of the the Thames, which at that time just had a muddy shore because there was no embankment. Um, What you can find out is through reading newspapers, Mm -hmm. um, and they are the key to quite a lot of the history that I can tell in my book. There were a number, a large number of newspapers from the Times, the Daily Telegraph, the, the mail, various other ones, daily news, Um, but uh, in the years previous to 1858, there uh, there was a huge number of new cheap newspapers, penny papers, um, uh, written for the poorer, the literate people, people who could read, but people who were poorer, uh, and the working class, and some of the papers were in fact quite some uh, radical and revolutionary, and it was they who tended to concentrate uh, on uh, what it was like To be poor and living close to the thames in the summer of 1858 so you do get a sense you get a sense of people um uh, unable to bear the smell anxious about diseases like cholera which had hit london uh, only a few years before and believing that cholera and other such diseases were born by air when in fact they were born by water um so they were in more danger than they thought (laughs) were drinking the Thames water. So basically, um, ordinary people um, were in a bit of a state. Better off people tended to be able to move out, move away from the river, at least for the summer months. But um, Parliament itself, of course, sat there, the Houses of Parliament with the Thames washing to and fro under its (laughs) walls. And there was a famous day the 30th of june when a committee room of mps members of parliament including benjamin Disraeli, who was chancellor of the exchequer and including william gladstone who was his opposite number on the liberal side um they all rushed out of their committee room um, with handkerchiefs to their noses because they simply could not sit in that room any longer because of the stench outside
0: and um Speaking of this, uh, the, the Thames uh, Act, there, there were quite a few um, measures being considered during the summer of 1858. But what exactly uh, did the, the Thames Act or the, the, the measure to clean up the Thames, what exactly did that, um, h- how long had that been under consideration? I think it was longer than just this summer, correct?
1: Yes, that is correct. um and indeed baszogetette who who was who was finally given the job of of uh, purifying the Thames, had brought forward his idea of intersecting sewers. Uh, Four or five years before, so 1854, 1855, um, uh, there had been hot summers and there was the problem. Everybody knew there was a problem with the Thames, but nobody knew quite what to do about it. And, of course, there was argument, as there always is in (laughs) legislative bodies, Um, uh, who was going to pay for this? Would it be Londoners who would pay through their rates or their taxes, or would it be the whole of Britain, since the Thames is the great, you know, national British river um, argument. So you had people popping up in Parliament saying, well, my constituents in um, the north of England, why should they pay for this? (laughs) Uh, And then how much would it cost? Who's going to under, which body is going to undertake the the job? How long will it take? And actually, which of a number of different engineers uh, with different plans? Was going to be appointed because although Bazalgette was the leading light and was known to be, um, there was another, a fairly well-known engineer, the man who, uh, a man called G- uh, Goldsworthy Gurney, who actually uh, was in charge of all the heating and lighting of the Houses of Parliament themselves. He wanted to dig a deep trench or channel in the middle of the Thames. And let all the sewage, as he thought it would, run away out to sea (laughs) in that very deep channel. Um, Now that, um, Bazalgette and others poured scorn on that particular uh, plan, but it had to be considered. So you can imagine people sitting in committees, um, poring over all these different um, uh, plans and wondering what to do. Uh, But also the newspapers yapping at their heels, saying, for goodness sake, we've been telling you for years you must get on with it. Surely it's not beyond the wit of man to find a method and just choose it and just do it. Um, <laughs> and that's what finally happened in the summer of 1858.
0: And uh, continuing on, on with the Thames, um, you write about the, the Great Eastern. What was the Great Eastern?
1: Well, th- that happened. I mean, that happened to be um, uh, going on at the same time. The Great Eastern was the largest um, steamship um, ever built and uh, built and uh, designed by another wonderful engineer, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, known for railway bridges um, uh, all around the country. But what he, and he's also known for the previous largest ship, the SS Great Britain, and this was, the Great Eastern was twice as large as his previous largest ship in the world, (laughs) and it was double iron hulled. I can't give you all off the top of my head all the dimensions, but the dimensions were huge, and the idea was that it would be able to carry enough fuel, plus passengers, plus freight, to sail all the way from Britain to Australia without having to stop and refuel anywhere. So it was a huge undertaking, Um, had to be financed uh, privately by philanthropists and interested parties. It wasn't a public venture. Um, And so Brunel went through quite a lot of difficulties with it, uh, getting enough money to, um, to get it afloat. And indeed it was so large that when it was finally launched into the Thames, which was in late 1857, so a little bit earlier than my summer, um, it was launched into the Thames it couldn 't be launched across the Thames because it was launched from the north side on the Isle of Dogs in the east end of london and if it had gone across, it would have hit the shore <laughs> and on the other side so Brunel had to design a huge slipway parallel to the river and the, and so the boat had to be launched sideways into the river but a couple of people died. A couple of the workmen died on, uh, when that happened because the chains slipped. And it was it was it was a, an adventure which was dogged by misadventure. Really, wonderful um, invention the way it was. In the summer of 1858, it was sitting at Deptford uh, on the river, uh, waiting <laughs> for enough finance to fit it out. So that it could undertake its maiden voyage, and even Queen Victoria went along. It was opened up to tourists; it, people paid a shilling or whatever it was um, to go on board and have a look at this amazing uh, obstacle, this amazing object. Um, and Queen Victoria even went along. I think at the very end of June, on a very hot, stinky day, so she <laughs> suffered. Uh, she she realised what her subjects were suffering when she went down the Thames to step onto the Great Eastern. So there it was, and it was actually, uh, unfortunately, in the end, a bit of a white elephant. It didn't actually get launched until 1859. It never went as far as Australia because uh, it was discovered that there were no um, docks um, and harbours in the world (laughs) large enough for it to enter. So it was so far ahead of its time, I suppose, um, that that it was was a bit of a a white elephant. Except the one other um, thing about this story, which also begins in the summer of 1858, is that the first Atlantic cable, telegraph cable, was laid Mm -hmm. by two ships, one American, one British, in the middle of the Atlantic. And the, the, the cables were joined again in June, in hot June 1858, Queen Victoria managed to speak in August. There were one or two breakages and so on, but by August, she was able to speak to the American president, Buchanan, the <laughs> canon. They exchanged about eight words each. Um, and so that was a great success, except that the cable then broke, and that all had to go back to the, the, the drawing table again. But the dear old Great Eastern finally managed to do something useful because in 1866, so a good many years later, Um, it was the Great Eastern which was sent out into the Atlantic to finally, successfully, and permanently join the Atlantic telegraph cable. So uh, two uh, uh, inventions and pieces of progress uh, came together um, through the Great Eastern and the the telegraph cable, but not until later. But the seeds were sown in 1858.
0: And... um another another going back to the the politics of 1858 another prominent um, measure uh, before Parliament was the India Act what did uh, what did that accomplish well
1: that was actually t- um, undertaken by the previous government, the um, Liberal or Whig government of Lord Palmerston, which was rudely removed from office in February 1858. And to their surprise, the Tories, the Conservatives, got uh, got in. But they were um, operating with some, not with a majority. So they were a minority government, the Tories. Lord Derby was the um, prime minister, and Benjamin Disraeli was his chancellor of the Exchequer. But Disraeli was uh, doubly important, because since Lord Derby, being a lord, <laughs> being the 14th lord, Earl of Derby, um, he sat in the upper house, the House of Lords, and he led the house there. So Disraeli, as his second-in-command, was actually the um, leader of the House of Commons, the lower house. And so it's Disraeli who put through a number of these acts, including the 10th Purification Act. But the India Act had been passed, um, and uh, this uh, uh, the Tory government was just kind of Completing it really. What it was, was it was to take the governance of India away from the East India Company, which was, of course, a trading company. But the East India Company was doing wonderful trade with India, but was undertaking um, organization um, uh, of Indians and was treating them very. Badly, really, uh, and was was not answerable to anybody because it wasn't an arm of government. And so the India Act really was, especially after the uh, the Sepoy Revolt, which at that time was called the Indian Mutiny of 1857, uh, where where there really were, were some uprisings against this unfair British rule by this um, trading company. Um, it had been decided by Palmerston, but was put through finally by Derby and Disraeli that the British government should take over the governance of. India, And although, of course, now we look back and think, well, India then um, in 1948, I think it was, uh, finally got its independence from, um, from the, the British Empire, um, actually, uh, the, the British government, government was very much um, more sympathetic uh, and open-minded towards India, its religions, its um, nabobs, its princes, and so on, its principalities, than the company had been. And indeed, Queen Victoria was very keen. She, uh, she interfered quite a bit in politics, and she was very keen in her letters to and from Disraeli um, on making sure that um, the Indians should feel that they could practice their own religions, they didn't have to have Christianity f- uh, foisted on them, and that they um, could retain some of their customs. Uh, And so, in fact, it was actually a a rather good act, uh, which really Disraeli and Derby finalized uh, rather than bringing in from scratch.
0: And uh, speaking of Disraeli, obviously he would uh, go on to eventually become a two-time prime minister of the United Kingdom. Uh, How was his uh, political career sort of unfolding during this summer?
1: Well, that's another extremely interesting thing, because although he was 53 in 1858, so not exactly a spring chicken, he actually had not uh, tasted power very much. He was very keen to taste power, but he'd only uh, once before been in government in 1852, again as chancellor of the Exchequer with Derby as prime minister, but that was only a nine-month wonder, so they didn't achieve anything then. And here he was again, suddenly pitched into power in February 1858. Uh, Again not a very long-lived government. They They were booted out the following June, but they did manage to do about 16 months of work, and they did a huge amount of work. Uh, and Disraeli um, really made his name here in eighteen fifty eight uh, before that, nobody had trusted him, including his own um, boss, Lord derby <laughs> and other Tories because he had been known to undermine the previous leader Robert Peel, So Robert Peel and um, Disraeli was very ambitious but um personally ambitious rather than ambitious for party really uh, and he had he was quite rackety he owed what would be millions and millions of pounds to some rather racy aristocrats um, at this time. And if that had been known, he couldn't really have retained his place in Parliament. He was hugely in debt. Uh, i'm not quite sure what he spent money on, although there were women <laughs> so, <laughs> and there were um, you know and he built himself a huge house and uh in the country and acted a bit like a, a, a kind of country squire so Disraeli was known to be not terribly trustworthy basically uh and he was known to be clever but thought to be really a bit of a cad. <laughs> uh, which he was really, <laughs> but here in this summer he not only put through the act. He, he if you read the speeches in Hansard, in the, the account of some, the parliamentary uh, uh, speeches and and debates, if you read carefully for that summer, um, he cajoled, he flattered, and he he, he rhetoric, I would say, um, a quite a slow, reluctant House of Commons in particular, uh, into passing his act. (laughs) He got them finally. They were up on their feet, as I say, all the time, saying, how much is it going to cost? Who's going to pay? Who's going to do the job? Da, 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 da. And he simply said... Let's just pass the Act. We'll leave it to the people that we're putting in charge of the Metropolitan Board of Works. We can trust them. They are good, trusty Englishmen. I mean, he did all that kind of um, <laughs> sort of nationalistic, traditional rhetoric. And as one of the newspapers said, he simply, he simply spoke in blank verse. Uh, he poeticised um, the Parliament in passing his Act. He was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> And the newspapers having attacked him quite a lot, and also not being averse to um, a bit of anti-Semitism um, towards him, nonetheless, they they claimed they declaimed him as the hero of the hour. And just while we're on the anti-Semitism thing, you'll be wondering perhaps how he could have been a member of Parliament and indeed a member of the government and of the cabinet, being a Jew. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason because Jews at that time could not sit in Parliament, uh, but he. His father, who had been a rather quiet, um, wealthy scholar, um, Isaac Disraeli, had been advised by friends to have his children baptized, which they were in their teenage years, in order that they could actually have some kind of career. Um, And so Disraeli was known to be Jewish, of Jewish origin, but he had been baptized. (laughs) And he was also uh, instrumental in 1858, in this same hot summer, in finally... Uh, helping to get an, uh, another act through, which was the Oaths Act. Mm-hmm. And this was an act to allow um, Lionel de Rothschild, one of the great Rothschild banking family, to take his seat. He'd been elected, Rothschild had been elected 11 years before in 1847 um, to sit as a, a, a um, member of parliament for the city of London. But he hadn't been able to take his seat and take part in the debates because he would have had to uh, swear the parliamentary oath on the true faith of a Christian. And he couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't do that. So uh, endless acts or bills had been coming forward, mainly by the Liberals rather than the Tories, uh, to Parliament to allow Rothschild to, to, to take the oath without that phrase. And it was in this summer of 1858 that finally the House of Commons Beat down the House of Lords who were against it and managed to pass that. So Rothschild, with the help of Disraeli and others, managed to take his seat um, and didn't have to say it was on the true faith of a Christian.
0: <laughs> so switching gears, maybe away from politics a little bit. Um, Charles Darwin published on the Origin of Species in 1859, but uh, he was he was pretty busy during the summer of 58 as well. What was he up to?
1: Yes, Uh, well, well, uh, what what I do sort of say in the book uh, is that uh, in in a certain way, the summer of 1858 was more important for Darwin than was the moment of publication of Origin of Species in November 1859, because Darwin was working away, he'd been working away at his theory of evolution and his idea that the mechanism for evolution was natural selection. He'd been working on their natural selection idea for 20 years, ever since he'd returned from his famous voyage of the Beagle in the 1830s. But Darwin was a perfectionist he wanted to um, make comparisons and, and do research, and he corresponded with naturalists all over the world, and he was extremely anxious to get all his facts right and to demonstrate and to give proper examples and do a proper scientific survey uh, before he published his work. He was also um, reluctant in some ways to publish because he knew perfectly well that um the people with religious faith, that is the majority, um, would worry about the implications for the human species of his, um, his theory of, uh, uh, of how animal species either survive, the survival of the fittest in what he calls the struggle for life, and how some do not survive and how there is extinction of species. And he knew very well that um, this would upset many of the people who taught him at the University of Cambridge, for example, and also, crucially, his own wife, who was a very devout Christian. And she was really pretty upset at the idea that her husband was going to be publishing this book. So for those reasons, and also for the reason that he had the famous mysterious illness, which he may have brought back from, um, from his voyage, Um, uh, in South America, Um, he was constantly vomiting and having diarrhea and dizzy fits and generally couldn't go about and and couldn't go and join his fellow scientists in London. He lived just outside London in Kent, um, quietly in his own home, doing his own research, writing letters to people and corresponding with scientists, but not really um, involving himself because he simply wasn't fit. So ill health reluctance to upset religious people and a, a meticulousness uh, for detail are uh, the reasons why he was still going on and on what he was still calling an abstract he wasn't calling it a proper book yet um and uh, he would not have published it um for several years to come he himself said that if something hadn't happened, which I'm about to get to, uh, right in the middle of this hot June uh, of 1858, he w- the book would have been four or five times as long, and it would have taken another four years to publish, and nobody would have had the patience to read it. Well, what happened in 1858? In June, in the middle of June, he got this letter suddenly out of the blue from a fellow naturalist, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, who was on his own voyage of discovery in the Malay Archipelago. And Wallace had come to his own conclusion, and he'd even used the term natural selection. Uh, and he sent Darwin, dear Mr. Darwin, he sent him uh, an eight-page essay, which he had written in a fever, in a <laughs> hut, um, in Malaysia, um, because it had suddenly come to him—a eureka moment. Hmm. He had too had been trying to puzzle out. Um, what the mechanism for evolution was. And he sent this to Darwin and said, I wonder if you think that this is worth publishing or worth showing to other scientists. Very humble, very, you know, uh, looking up to the older um, man. And Darwin got the letter and you could imagine him smacking his forehead and saying, well, all my friends have been telling me uh, I should... Get, I, I should go into into publication. I should go into print with my theories, otherwise somebody else might um, uh, be to it. And here it looks as if somebody might be doing that. And so he got the shock of his life. Uh, but being Darwin, um, he he didn't rush into print himself or or boast publicly that you know he had been working on the the theory himself for twenty years, although that was true. But he did get his two best scientific friends in London to help him because they. Had read some of his notes, um, which proved, and they could they could vouch for the fact that he had uh, discovered this this uh, natural collection idea um, before Russell Wallace came up with it <laughs> um, and they arranged two of his friends arranged for the papers of all three, two papers by Darwin, which some scientists had seen, uh, and the one paper that um, Wallace had sent to Darwin, and uh, the, the the two scientists, Lyle and Hooker arranged for all three papers to be read out to a scientific society on a hot night, 1st of July, 1858. And so that was when the the, the, the idea of origin of species first um, came into the public domain, although it was only in front of a number of scientists, many of whom were actually reluctant to accept it. So um, it didn't hit the headlines at this point. But this was the beginning of Darwin finally realizing he had to get a move on, and finish his work and publish it and take whatever praise was going to come, but also whatever blame was going to come. And the story
0: is really interesting
1: for uh, for Darwin's sense of conscience and anxiety during that hot summer. Uh, one of his children died of scarlet fever at the same time, uh, and he was having a, a, a torrid time generally. Um, but he also comes out quite heroically because he was so careful and conscientious and desiring not to be unfair to Wallace. Mm -hmm. Wallace, in his turn, never, ever claimed to have been cheated by Darwin or to have found it all out. In fact, he openly said to everybody else, um, I could never have had the patience to sit down and do all the studying that Mr. Darwin has done, and it was Wallace who coined the term Darwinism and in fact wrote a little book called Darwinism in later years. So it's an unusual story of rivals <laughs> rival professionals actually um, uh, acting in a, an extraordinarily generous way towards one another
0: yeah it's not it's definitely not something you hear of as the outcome usually that they they're friendly and end on friendly terms.
1: Exactly. No, that's right. And so there were plenty of other um, uh, of the leading scientists who were um, w- 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 were showing the opposite. Uh, you know, attacking Darwin <laughs> and then pretending not to have attacked him, and um, and so on. Uh, uh, and uh, and they were all at one another's throats. Really, there were there were whole arguments at the various um, meetings of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. Um, people arguing. Uh, and getting quite heated about it all uh and writing anonymously in the newspapers uh attacking one another but Darwin and Wallace uh, didn't have any uh, didn't do any of that it was all extraordinarily well rather uplifting really
0: <laughs> well on the other end of that spectrum uh Charles Dickens and uh William Makepeace Thackeray attended a banquet in May together um but uh about a month later i think they're they're i guess polite friendship, uh, comes to an end. Uh, what, what happened between them?
1: Yes, well, you're right. Their, their friendship was a polite one. It was always a little bit cool because they were rivals for top spot, you know, as the, the greatest novelist in English at that time. Um, and uh, Dickens, of course, was ahead because he had started publishing in his 30s and was very famous for Pickwick Papers and Oliver Twist. Uh, and and was really had 10 a 10 year start on Thackeray who didn't really start writing novels until the 1840s and he uh got fame with Vanity Fair in 1848 at which point he wrote in uh, jubilation to his mother to say ah i'm up there at the top of the tree fighting it out with dickens for <laughs> you know great great novelist well fine um dickens uh didn't much like Zachary's writings and what he didn't also like about Zachary as a person. Zachary is a very um, uh, likable man, but he had a fatal flaw and, and, and Dickens was on the end of the fatal flaw, which is that Zachary was obsessed with being a gentleman. And by that, he didn't just mean being, uh, acting in a gentlemanly fashion such as Darwin does towards Wallace. He meant being, um, uh, acting, acting up to a sort of, um, uh, almost a medieval code, of um, And being a gentleman meant being, of course, um, of a high-born family, not an aristocrat, but the next thing down. Uh, of course, you would have had to go to Oxford or Cambridge University. You would have to, um, you know, move in certain circles. Mm-hmm. And and that seemed to go, in in Thackeray's mind, with a kind of moral gentlemanliness. Um, But the point about it was that Thackeray looked down on Dickens. Dickens was not a university man. Dickens had pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He left school famously at the age of 12 or 13 because his father was sent to Debtors' prison, and poor Dickens uh, had to pick up what education he could uh, after that. Um, No university for him, no easy road to fame and fortune. And Dickens always felt, rightly, really, that Thackeray looked down on him. Um, In fact, when Thackeray died, which he did in 1863, Dickens was asked to write an obituary, which he did very graciously, considering, you know, he didn't. um, uh, he, he felt uneasy about Thackeray in various ways but he did a gracious obituary but he wrote to a friend to say he was fed up reading in all the papers about what a gentleman Thackeray was or how he stood up for gentlemanly values as if writes Dickens the rest of us were of the Tinker tribe so <laughs> So um, Dickens and Thackeray didn't really get on, but they, but for the sake of you know they they didn't they didn't fall out until this summer of 1858. So there they were at a Royal Academy dinner praising one another I- in May, um, and they were even inviting one another to dinner occasionally. And their daughters, both their their sets of daughters, were friendly. They each had two daughters, and they were friendly. But um, they fell out in this hot summer when. You might say people got very hot-headed at the Garrick Club, which they were, of which they were both members. And one of Dickens's um, imitators, one of the sort of so-called penny aligners, the, the young men again, not not university-educated, no money, but writing um, furiously in penny newspapers. A man called Yates, Edmund Yates, um, who was a bit of a protege of Dickens's. Yates wrote um, a, a rather mean-minded, um, nasty piece. Um, in his Saturday paper about Thackeray. And Thackeray took umbrage, um, which he shouldn't have done because as a young penny aligner himself, he had, as he knew, done exactly the same thing (laughs) to older, more famous people, written scurrilously about them. But anyway, Thackeray took umbrage and asked the Garrick Club to remove Yates, who was a a young member, to remove Yates from the club. Um, If Yeats didn't apologise to him. <laughs> Yeats with Dickens at his elbow, saying, don't apologise, don't apologise, apologize. <laughs> <laughs> he the club took Thackeray's part. There were meetings, there were walkings out, there were votes, and in the end, um, Yeats was expelled and resented it for the rest of his life. <laughs> Dickens and Thackeray uh, didn't speak after that, which is really rather sad. Um, they fell out. They met twice. Um, uh, after this falling out in the summer of 1858 on the steps of their various clubs just to nod and shake hands, but they never really spoke and were friendly again. And as I say, Thackeray died in 1863, so that was the end of it. And it was a very silly spat, and it was mainly Thackeray's fault, <laughs> but Dickens joined in unnecessarily. But the, one of the reasons Dickens joined in was that he was having a torrid time the the most torrid of torrid times, and Dickens, I'm afraid, if Disraeli comes out of the summer of 1858 with his reputation enhanced, and indeed not just his reputation at the time enhanced, but generally one one, one can see now, one admires him for his activity in 1858, in a way one could admire him for some of the early things, the opposite is true of Dickens. Dickens really hit rock bottom, um, both in terms of his mood and his his morals. I'm afraid. Hmm. Uh, in the summer of 1858, he finally he finally separated from his wife, Catherine, of 22 years, who had borne him 10 children. He told his friends that um, the marriage had never been a success, that Catherine had never been a good mother, that her unmarried sister Georgina. A younger sister who'd lived with them and helped out with the children uh, was the real mother to the children Mm -hmm. and not Catherine. Um, And he even hinted that she might be might have some mental health problems. Um, And he put not the whole of this. This is writing to friends. But he actually made a statement, uh, had a statement published in The Times in July, 1858, saying, uh, it, we, we, I must, uh, as I am a public person and people are talking about me, I must tell my faithful readers and so on that um, I am separating amicably from my wife the children. All know what's going on and are all quite happy about it all. And I do have to deny rumours, which he did not specify, going round about other parties being involved in this separation. And it was a very foolish um uh, separation statement a it was it was untrue in a way uh, it wasn't amicable and the children actually uh, the younger children the youngest was six uh, didn't really some of them didn't know what was going on and others took one side or the other but Dickens was determined to present this uh, separation state as a, as a, a you know perfectly um, even handed business um, but it, it it wasn't true and also um, it was true. Uh, The rumour, one of the rumours going round, was that Dickens was having an affair with an actress the same age as his second daughter, i.e. 18. (laughs) Uh, And Dickens was 46, I think, at this time. Um, And he was. He was having an affair with an actress he'd fallen in in love with the previous summer. Um, But in the clubs, and this is where Thackeray got involved, all at the same time as the Garrick business, Thackeray was told by somebody at the club that Dickens was having an affair with his sister-in-law, i.e. Georgina, (laughs) um, the sister who's living with them and looking after the children. And Zachary said, no, 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 nothing of the kind. It's an actress. (laughs) And that story got back to Dickens. And Dickens thought that Thackeray had been, you know, um, setting the rumour going, which wasn't exactly <laughs> true. However, anyway, that was another reason for their estrangement. And Dickens really behaved extremely badly. He told lies publicly. He didn't need to make a public statement. His friends told him not to. He fell out with a number of his friends. I mean, he he insisted that two of his best friends should act. Um, for Catherine in the separation arrangements, you know, the financial arrangement, she had to leave the family home. Mm -hmm. Uh, He thought this is fine as long as he paid for her to live somewhere else. But, you know, she was forced to leave the family home. He was setting out the arrangement. So he had um, lawyers acting for him and then he had two of his friends acting for um, Catherine. But of course, he soon started to suspect them of being on her side. And so he cut off all relations with them. He cut off relations with his publisher because the publisher didn't um, repeat the statement in Punch, the magazine that the publisher ran. So Dickens was just, he lost his head Mm -hmm. and he really um, lost all sense of proportion and behaved extremely badly during this summer. So it was a really, really low point in his
0: life. And all this was happening uh, while these, these divorce courts were going on, right?
1: Yes, um, because another of the busy things that was, were going on in Parliament were, uh, was the, a new divorce act, a divorce act, the first ever divorce act, had been passed at the end of the previous year by Palmerston's government, uh, and, but had, ca- had come into force on the 1st of January, 1858. Um, but the real, but real cases, cases of hardship and difficulty uh, deciding on divorce, uh, were actually only hitting the headlines um, in June and July, and it was at that time that there were particular um, cases, uh, difficult cases coming up, where somebody um, was, was 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 claiming adultery and or. Um, other sorts of activities, and where, in fact, um, the the new divorce court was having some difficulty uh, and having to uh, add various amendments. So some amendments were going through to the Act in order to deal with some of these famous cases. The cases hit the headlines because they tended to coincide with um, spouses putting their husband or wife in a, a lunatic asylum, uh, in order to get rid of them. And that was another thing that was hitting the headlines. And here was Dickens saying to people, I think my wife I, you know, might be a little bit mad, although he wasn't planning to put her in asylum. But it all fed into a kind of frenzy that the newspapers were involved in, <laughs> uh, certain difficult um, cases which were coming to, to, the, to public attention. And there was that one moment where Dickens believed for a moment that his wife Catherine's family, whom he hated and believed to have set about all the rumors about his adultery and so on, um, he thought for one moment that they were going to persuade Catherine to take him to the divorce court and um, accuse him of adultery. <laughs> but the thing was, it wasn't going to happen because Catherine would never, she was a quiet, um, you know, loving woman um, who would never, ever have wanted to put herself or Dickens into that awful public position. And we know that that's the case. We know she never intended to do such a thing, whether some of her family hot-headedly suggested it or might just have tried to frighten Dickens into thinking it might happen. But if Catherine had gone to the divorce court, she, as a woman, would have had to prove not only adultery, men could now go to the divorce court and get a divorce, a full divorce from their wife if they could prove adultery. A woman was still uh, not quite so well off as a man in this respect. A woman had to prove adultery plus uh, one other thing like abandonment for two years, physical or mental um, abuse or torture or incest. And uh, the idea that Dickens might have been having an affair with his sister-in-law, well, she, they weren't related, so it wouldn't have been um, physical incest. But because under, under the law, a man and a woman were one, if you then um, had an affair with the sister of the person with whom you were one, it counted in law as incest. Mm. So complicated though that is, it did give Dickens just a moment's fright, should the story about him having an affair with Georgina, which he wasn't, um, be the one that um, that hit the divorce court. Well, it didn't, but he got a nasty uh, fright about this. And of course, um, it was all really, it was yet another thing, which was in the news in this really very busy summer.
0: I'm sure the uh, all this tabloid fodder at least gave uh, <laughs> some distraction from maybe the heat and the stench.
1: <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. There was lot. There was lots of news. There was all that kind of news. There were there, there were various things like um, an American horse tamer called James Raley who came over and um, uh, put on shows where he would ask people to bring their most untamable untamed horse, or even a zebra. Actually, at London Zoo, he tamed, um, and he had this m- wonderful technique. And Queen Victoria and Prince Albert brought Prince Albert some. Um, well, they didn't bring. I mean, they they got James ready to go to Windsor to their castle, and uh, and in front of various um, invited guests, tame uh, Albert's most untamable horse. <laughs> and um, so this was fun for for everybody. Um, there were other things. There was uh, the crin- crinoline, the very wide wide skirts under uh, over the hoop petticoats. They were um, at their widest. Um, in that summer, they got wider and wider until eventually they couldn't get any wider. And uh, within ten years, the crinoline had had subsided. But it was by no means subsiding in 1858. Uh, and Punch, the illustrated satirical magazine, mm-hmm. um, which as I say, Dickens's publishers um, were were uh, were the publishers of Punch, constantly had uh, pictures of women with these huge uh, crinolines trying to get into a carriage or. <laughs> trying to sit down at a picnic when the hoop would go up in the air, or various various things, trying to get into a church doorway, uh, all sorts of silly things like that. Um, And indeed, there was one in one of the cheaper newspapers, um, there was a court case of a young woman who used her crinoline um, to stash... Stolen items <laughs> under <laughs> under her, her capacious crinoline. So it was there was quite a lot of fun going on at the same time as um you know a, 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 as all this uh, a rather intense uh, business in, in in this hot summer.
0: All right. Well, the book is One Hot Summer: Dickens, Darwin, Disraeli, and the Great Stink of 1858. Rosemary, thank you for coming on.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having
0: me. That does it for this week's episode of the Yale University Press Podcast. Thank you for listening, and be sure to visit YaleBooks.com to keep up with this podcast, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app.